about it because uh, one of the things that happened is uh, in when I was a PhD student and I was teaching in Ferguson College, uh, there was this wisdom tree festival held at the FTII Pune, which was actually uh, mentored by Jaya Bachchan, right? That's Amita Bachchan's wife, right? And I went for it, right? Uh, because, uh, yeah, it was a film festival and I like films and I, I went to the film festival. One of the interesting things about it is uh, there was Karan Johar, my guide, Aniket Zabre, right? And the director of the Film Institute, they were all up on the podium and we were having a very interesting time because we wondered how such a serious person like my guy was placed along with uh, Karan Johar, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. And the most important thing is my guy read his paper, Can Cinema Be Taught? Right? And at the end of it, he quotes Longinus, right? And he says, Longinus says, nobody can teach you how to write poetry, right? And Longinus' essay, if you want it, you can look it up, right, on the sublime. It's very interesting. It's talking about the different techniques of writing poetry, right? You have bombast. You have the idea of hyperbaton. You have all these things that you use in music. That is, you have, if any of you have studied music, you get a little line like this, which is almost like your greater than less than sign, right? But it's showing you how you go up from a very soft, uh, soft and gentle kind of a sound that you produce to a very loud sound, right? Yeah. So that's so all those kind of things are also what he's talking about when he's talking about poetry, right? And at the end of this piece, Lord Janus is saying, you can't teach people to write poetry, right? When when television institute is all to teach people how to be and make cinema, right? Yeah. So can cinema be taught? Can you teach somebody to write poetry? Can you teach somebody to write a novel, right? And then you come up with the fact that you can't do that, okay? You can teach people to be more sensitive to the figures of speech, to the figures of sound, to all these kind of figures which you have in poetry, but can you teach poetry, people to write poetry, which is sublime, right? Yeah, and he's talking about, and he's using this word called timidity, right? which I mean not to infer by elaborate, I mean labored, right? Yeah, so the question is, uh, Longinus is actually talking about how a poet falls on his face when he attempts something that is too high for him and, he, uh, and it becomes too low, right? That's what he calls bombast, right? Then the timidity is the, uh, the laborious kind of writing which doesn't look very good in poetry. Right? So we're actually talking about the style of writing poetry, right? And what are the effects of it, right? Uh, it is a gigantic hyperbole by which you describe the evils of existing society, right? Yeah. So now the idea of hyperbole is something that one is an over-exaggeration as we know, right? And what happens is uh, snakes, lions, hyenas, behemoths is uh, carrying your resentment beyond bounds, right? So what is uh, Lam telling Coolridge, right? He's saying the idea of this uh, thing called uh, a hyperbole is something you shouldn't have used to talk about society, right? And you begin to wonder why, 
because you've already had somebody like Hobbes, right? And the Leviathan, he's talking about the human being as a rotten kind of creature, right? And that's after which a lot of laws are enacted about how does the ruler behave, right? Uh, okay, so all these democratic systems are talking about transparency, etc. After Hume, who is suspicious of every human being and every human being who comes to power is always suspect, right? So we have to have a system of transparency, right? We know what's happening in our own country. We are with this huge debate called the PMKS Fund and the Hume's logic appears, right? And Hume's logic is nobody... Uh, the human nature is corruptible, right? And human beings seek corruption as easily as they can, right? And as human beings, if we have to govern a state, we have to fight ourselves and our tendencies and our inclination, right? So that's where uh, this person called, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Lamb is talking, right? Yeah, there's somebody who wants to say something? Oh, that's a, yeah, okay, right? Uh, fine, that's where Lam is talking about it, right? It, Excuse me, sir? Yes. Sir, yes. I have a doubt. Yes. <laughs> so basically, what piece of writing are we talking about here? The religious musings or the watchman? Yeah, he's talking about in the religious music, uh, in the watchman, he's talking about his religious musings. Uh, Coolridge has written a piece called the... Religious Musings. Yeah, I've reread the extract from the religious musing and retract what individuals there was in my censure of it as elaborate, right? I've been over elaborate in my attacking it. That's what he's saying. Yeah, there are times when one is not in a disposition thoroughly to relish good writing. Yeah, so what is the problem there? So we are talking about a journal called The Watchman and in that comes something called religious musings, right? And... Uh, uh, Charles Lamb has made uh, an attacked it, right? And now he's saying, let's be more balanced, right? Yeah, uh, my attack has been too elaborate, so let me tone it down. Yeah, come on. Any, is that okay? Is that okay? Yeah, okay. Yeah, if, uh, yeah it's, it's kind of a convoluted phrase, right? And the writing is convoluted and it's not simple at all, right? Uh, yeah, the, the other writings of Lamb are quite good, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the... Carrying the resentment beyond bounds. The pictures of Simon, the frenzy and ruin, the whore of Babylon, the cry of foul spirits, uh, disinherited of earth, and the strange beatitude with the good man shall recognize in heaven as well as uh, yeah, as well as the particularizing of the children uh, of wretchedness, I have unconsciously included every part of it from a variety of uniform of uniform excellence. I hunger and thirst to read the poem complete. That is a capital line in your sixth number, right? Yeah. So he's talking about the uh, yeah. He's talking about this idea of. What kind of pictures have you given, right? Yeah, and uh, some of it seems very strange to us. The whore of Babylon uh, is actually what people look at as Rome, right? The city of Rome is called the whore of Babylon, right? Okay, uh, and uh, it's got references 
to the Bible, right? Yeah. So it's used in a lot of Protestant discourse because uh, when the Protestants are against uh, the Catholic Church, etc., they uh, they use the idea of Rome as a whore of Babylon, right? And saying that, well, this is the seat of Catholicism and it's actually the devil's seat, right? Milton does it in his Paradise Lost, but is taken up with the Baroque architecture and the Baroque painting of the Sistine Chapel, right? And he can't control himself and gives you some beautiful images of all that, right? Yeah. But what is Lamb saying? He's saying all these things of the frenzy and ruin, right? The, the city of foul spirits, degenerative earth, and the strange beatitude, right? Yeah. So he's talking about all these things of Christianity, right? And which the good man shall recognize in heaven, right? Now, the Beatitudes are supposed to be the most important part of the Bible, of the New Testament at least, right? Yeah. And it goes like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit and something, something, something. They shall inherit the earth. And somebody, if you want, I can read it out because uh, I have, I'm teaching the Bible to some students. If you want, you can, you can look for the Beatitudes, right? Yeah. Right. So that's supposed to be the Sermon on the Mount where Christ is giving a Sermon on the Mount. Right? And it begins with blessed are these and blessed are you who suffer for justice and righteousness sake, right? For you all is the kingdom of heaven. And what is the kingdom of heaven? That's the quest, right? Yeah. So that becomes a problem. Uh, yeah, which which the good man shall recognize in heaven. Right? Now where is heaven? Milton has already demolished that when in his paradise lost, when he says the mind in its own place and of itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. The mind in its own self and of its place, right, can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven, right? If some of you are psychology students, you say, well, this is true. My mind can be a horrible mind and even if I'm in the most happy place, I can make a hell of it, right? And even if I'm in the most terrible place, I can make it heaven, right? Yeah. And of course, Satan in Paradise Lost says that, right? So when he's going and talking about that, it's taking up the count of Milton and he's also talking about the idea of sublimity, right? And the idea is sublimity is something that takes you beyond the human being, right? And that's when we get the sublime, right? Yeah. And the question is, Longinus is writing that and uh, Burke is also writing about how do you write, how do you make a work sublime, right? So when you see a piece of work, you say, wow, this is out of the world, right? It just transform, uh, transforms your uh, senses into something that is beautiful and exquisite and you don't have words for it and you can't describe it, right? That's what's supposed to be sublime, right? So we're going back to that, right? And of course, when we talk about aesthetics, we're talking about how does the work become sublime or how does the work transform or transpose you into another world, right? And all great art, great architecture, right, actually does that, right? Yeah, whether, uh, of course, I don't know what's the, the condition of the Taj Mahal going to be with all the, the politicians going and running for it, yeah? But when you actually go to it, you get this kind of wonder, right? Uh, when you go to all these great monuments, even the Ran Kivav, if you've taken the trouble to go to North Gujarat, 
yeah you begin to say wow what is that right yeah so that kind of what the transactional call uh, analysis analysts call the wow, wow experience right you just saw wow i can't believe that this is so beautiful right yeah so that's something that is very romantic yeah and it also comes from you also see it in kant's immanuel kant and his idea of the aesthetic right yeah which is a very romantic idea of aesthetics right it doesn't it, uh, of course when uh, i was a student and my teacher uh, uday kumar right who's now who was the head of jnu maybe a, a year ago or so right uh, the english department there of course he had come back from oxford then so he was talking about kant and the kantian system right and i thought uh, that was interesting right because what happens to a work right he talks about these three people and somebody comes and says wow this is sublime and beautiful and all that kind of thing right yeah but what happens to a worker who sees the same scene every day right is beauty different from a work right yeah is beauty uh, is the same kind of beauty seen by a person who's educated and a person who sees the same thing every day right okay or is this a universal phenomenon right so kant is talking about the universal of space and time right so is there something called a universal idea of beauty right yeah so what is beautiful for you is not beautiful for me and i find something beautiful right and all those kind of things happen today right but uh uh when we are talking about this point of time there is something called the gothic which becomes a form of art which is uh talked about and recognized right and the gothic is art which is ugly and because of its ugliness you get attracted to it and you find it beautiful right yeah so that's the gothic art actually is from what you call germany because they're supposed to be the goths right yeah so you get uh art artists like greenwald and uh uh many many german artists right uh who have a lot of uh the ugly which is beautiful right and you get also the gargoyles which you see in uh, oxford and many other parts of the world you can go back to pune university the main building you have gargoyles and you have uh, in our university uh, you have at least three classrooms in the arts faculty which are full of gargoyles on the top right yeah they are very very hideous kind of ugly creatures right yeah and the idea is you get attracted to them and they're very fanciful right so the idea of what is beauty is a big issue that's taking place in england at that time right and even a little later especially when you get a uh, uh, lord elgin who gets the uh, huge kind of uh, marble sculptures which are now in the british museum right yeah you see them the huge horses and all those kind of things and they are called the elgin marbles right so keats actually has a poem on that right so that they have a big discussion about beauty right and of course keats has a very controversial line where he says the first first in beauty are the first in might right yeah so you might like to read all of keats and see how he looks at uh, the idea of beauty right uh yeah so he's saying at one level your your stuff is too elaborate it goes too far away right yeah 
I am unconscious, yeah, as well as particularizing of the children of wretchedness. I have unconsciously included every part of it from a variety of uniform excellence, right? Yeah, so he's saying, by and large, everything is great, though some of them go a little overboard, right? Yeah, and when we're talking about that, he's actually defining how romanticism operates, right? And romanticism has this idea of excess, right? So when you write, you write in such a way that it overflows, right? And that's the idea, which is an idea which comes from a man called Lessing, right? And Lessing uh, is a man uh, who's a philosopher, right? I think it's Gottfried Lessing, who's a German philosopher, right? And who's talking about the idea of the genius, right? Which comes again and again in the Lucy Gray poems, right? And uh, even in Gray's Elegy, you might find the idea of the genius over there, right? And the idea of the genius is that if somebody really has this idea, it is really a genius, the genius will be found out. You don't have to run around, you don't have to market yourself, right? If you are a genius, you will be found out even if you are in a remote corner of the world, right? So that's the idea of genius and the idea of genius is something that is taken up by the romantics in a big way, right? Yesterday I talked about Beethoven, yeah, and how he tears up this dedication to uh, Napoleon, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, at the same time, in the Romantic period, what happens is the play that we talked about, The Watchmen, and I talked about Hamlet, right? Now Hamlet is a play that nobody understood till the time of the Romantics, right? So when the Romantics come in, suddenly there's an understanding of this play, right? Because there's a hero as a madman, right? Otherwise it's called a problem play, it's called a mystery and a problem play, we don't understand it. That was how people operated, yeah? But it suddenly becomes a very, very important play when the Romantics read it and you have the idea of Hamlet's madness, right? Because that's one of the themes that the Romantics were very interested in because they were the proto-psychologists, right? So madness, imagination, all these kind of things build up from the romantics, right? So that's uh, when we have this idea of uh, the idea of uh, 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 the genius, right? And the idea of excellence. And you're talking about all these bits and pieces. This is an idea of criticism, which Coleridge itself has talked about in his criticism of Wordsworth in the Biographia Literaria, right? So actually, uh, Coolridge says, well, there are a lot of mistakes with Wordsworth's work, right? And he points out all the mistakes, right? And then he says, but well, in spite of all his mistakes, the, the good parts of his poetry are far outweigh the bad parts of it, right? Yeah, and therefore, He's actually almost going to say that uh, this man, Wordsworth, is a genius, right? So that's, and of course, when we, we know today, that's because of the theory of genius, which has come from a man called Leibniz, right? Uh, the dark, fre fresh-coated, horse, teeth 
chattering month. Yeah, that is a capital line in your sixth number, right? Yeah, so you're talking about the dark, freeze-coated, horse, teeth-chattering month, right? Yeah, so you're talking about a cold month and the teeth go chattering. That's what we do, right? Of course, what this is, when you have too many adjectives in a line, does anybody know what that is? Yeah, it's called a purple patch. That's a literary term. Look it up in your M.H. Abrams. The purple patch, right? And Shakespeare is full of that, right? Yeah, so you might... So here he's saying, this is a title and this is a purple patch, right? That's the... Uh, it's not said in words like that, but anybody who knows literature will say that, well, there's too many adjectives around and that's a purple patch. And of course, the poet has a right to use it because that's the poetic license, right? Yeah, in spite of it being not supposed to be used in a good prose, right? People all often indulge in violating rules even when they write prose, right? Uh, there are exactly such epithets as burn, Burns would have stumbled on, whose poem, On the Ploughed Up Daisy, you seem to have in mind, right? Now, he's talking about Robert Burns, right? Yeah, my love is like a red, red rose. I'm sure we've heard it again and again, right? So that's Burns' line. And Burns is a poet that the romantics go back to, right? And they look at his poetry as romantic, right? And the line that he's talking about uh, is interesting because he's talking about the ploughed up daisy, yeah, uh, you have in mind, right, yeah, and the ploughed up daisy is, you're talking about nature, we're talking about the rural life, which we talked about yesterday, that's the romantic, right, and when you plough up a daisy and you talk about that, right, what is your subject of poetry, right, that's what Wordsworth is talking about, right, is poetry about uh, the city or the village, right, and can you write poetry about maybe a, a street dog, right? Or can you write a poem on a street cow, which is half in India, of course, we have street cows now. Maybe in another 20 years, we won't, the way the government is going about this, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. But when we're talking about a street cow, can we write a poem on a street cow? Or can we write a poem on a garbage bin, right? Yeah. And can we look at that and make it a good poem, right? Which everybody will like to read, right? So when he's talking about, so that's the idea of the romantic poem, right? So you're talking about the daisy and the daisy is a flower and you're talking about the daisy being a uh, uh, cloud, right? Yeah. So he's saying, you're talking about Burns's poem. You seem to have that in mind. Yeah. Uh, now we uh, talked about the Lucy Gray poems of Wordsworth, right? And Wordsworth is great, uh, looking at uh, Lucy as a violet under a hidden stone, right? Yeah, right. So that's the idea of the genius, right? And he's talking about Lucy, right? And he's talking about how Lucy, and uh, uh, the Lucy Gray poems, right? It's talking about how she, everybody would know about her, though she is hidden and reclusive, right? Uh, right. Uh, your complaint that of your readers, some thought there was too much, some too little, 
original matter in your numbers reminds me of poor dead Parsons in the critic, right? Parsons is probably a name, right? Too little incident. Give me leave to tell you, sir. There is too much incident, right? Yeah, so uh, they're talking about some people have a problem because a lot of your stuff is not original, right? Now that's a very important charge and maybe when we look at a poet like W.H. Auden uh, who writes on poetry, if you want I can read that to you. I like that essay very much. Uh, Auden is probably uh, one of the best poets uh, of the Elliot generation in modern poetry. And if you uh, take some poetry uh, or study some poetry, you will have it, right? Yeah. And he writes this thing on poetry and he says, the language poets use, okay, or the images poets use are images that have been used before, right? And that's how you have a continuity in poetry, right? Like you have the daisy and uh, the plowed up daisy, right? So another person will take it and use that image again in a different way, right? Yeah. And the idea of the language of poetry goes from the images that are recycled, right? So that's what uh, you have Auden talking about, right? And uh, he's talking about another thing uh, which Parsons is writing about and he says, there's too much incident. I had liked to have forget thinking you, thanking you for that exquisite little morsel, the first Scalvernonian uh, song, the expression in the second, more happy to be unhappy in hell, right? Is it not very quaint, right? So he's talking about the line and he says, isn't this a, a nice and a very cute kind of line, okay? More happy to be unhappy in hell, right? Yeah, which is almost like Milton's line, yeah? What if the field is lost? All is not lost. Right? The struggle to revenge immortal hate. Right? Yeah? Uh, and better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Right? That's what Milton Satan says. And that's a line that is remembered again and again. Right? So the question is, more happy to be unhappy in hell. Right? Yeah? And that's what you call a rebel. Right? Yeah, that we what you can call all the rebels who are now put in jail, right? And I'm happier to be in jail than to be out of the streets, right? Because I've made my point. That's romantic, right? Yeah? So, more happy to be unhappy in hell, right? And it's not about being unhappy in heaven, right? Yeah, what? That's Milton Satan, but he's taking off from Milton and saying, more happy to be unhappy in hell, right? So the idea is, I'm unhappy in hell, but I'm more unhappy in hell than anywhere else. And the, the, so to make this the distinction between what is the happiness in hell, what is the unhappiness in hell, right? Yeah. And taking on Milton and overturning that and making you think about that, that's something important, right? Uh, is, is it not very quaint? Accept my thanks in common with those of all who love good poetry. Right? So he's saying this line is very nice. This is a poetic line which I like very much. Right? And we like some lines in poetry. Right? And that's something that we get 
from you have very interesting lines like Dryden's uh, line, right, in his Absalon Architophil, right? Yeah, uh, what, what is the line, right? Yeah, uh, genius and insanity so close aligned, thin walls do our realms divide. Genius and insanity so close aligned, thin walls do our realms divide, right? Which is about the theory of genius, though. Uh, Dryden is a neoclassical poet, right? He's talking about the idea of genius and insanity, right? And genius and insanity are very close together, and we still think so, right? Yeah, when uh, one, of my, one of my friends got schizophrenia, my classmates, right? Or something like that, we don't really know what it is, right? Uh, a lot of people who saw him said, well, he must be very intelligent, right? That's not true at all, but maybe he is, right? That's what all the other people said. Well, uh, all the schizophrenics are intelligent, they're little geniuses in their own way, right? Yeah, so that's after the romantics. You have sympathy for the madman because uh, madness is about being too intelligent, right? And you have this idea of the, the dividing line between genius and insanity, and you can always trip over from one to the other. Right? Yeah? So that's something that you might like to think about. Right? Uh, yeah. For the braze of yarrow, I congratulate you on the enemies you must have made by your splendid invective against the barterers in human flesh and sinews. Right? Yeah? So now he's got another poem. Right? And he's talking about, this is talking about the slave trade. Right? Yeah? And uh, it is a little earlier than this, in 1775 or 1776, right? You have a poet called Turner, right? Uh, not a poet, a painter called Turner, right? And uh, a little later, if you read prose that was prescribed, uh, that's a person called John Ruskin, right? Who writes unto this last, right? And most of his work, or uh, actually what changes him, as an art critic is a poet, uh, a painter called uh, Turner, who's an English painter, right? And one of the interesting things about paint, uh, Turner is Turner has become immortal almost because of his painting of the slave ship, right? Where you have a slave ship which is called Arkanen. That's still, no, no, I, I don't remember the name. Uh, Zong, right, Zong, right. Yeah, so Zong is a slave ship which has, is carrying slaves to the West Indies or uh, yeah, somewhere like that, right? Yeah, and uh, it's, you have slavery as an official kind of uh, position in England, right? And these people catch, uh, get the slaves from Africa and market them from England to uh, wherever they want the colonies for them to work as slaves, right? Yeah, and what happens is uh, if there is an accident, right, and the people die, uh, if the people die, uh, if the slaves die out of sickness, right, then you don't get money or insurance for the slave, right? So what the slave owners do is they throw the slaves out from the ship, right, and many of them die. Right? And that becomes a huge outcry in Britain and Turner paints that. Right? 
yeah? And actually, that changes this art historian, who's the first professor of art history in Oxford University, that's John Ruskin, right? And he uh, talks about the painting in his work, and he also writes a very important piece which inspires Gandhi, and Gandhi translates it into Gujarati, which is called Until This Last, right? Yeah, so that's a line from the Bible, which is talking about giving people a just wage, and it's taking up the idea of something called political economy, right? So, for that, uh, we have to talk about the idea of Turner, and Turner, and here this thing that you're talking about is, we're talking about the idea of the, uh, uh, the base, yeah, right, yeah, and he's saying, I congratulate you on the enemies you have made by your splendid invective against the barterers in human flesh and sinews. Sinews is the, the guts, the muscles, right, yeah, right, and that's when you're talking about the slave trade, right, and I congratulate you on the enemies you've made. Yeah, how do you look at that? Right? If you don't have enemies, you're nothing. Right? Yeah, you talk about anybody, right? And if you don't have enemies, you're not even worth it, right? If you have an enemy, at least somebody is taking notice of you, right? At least somebody hates you with their guts, right? Yeah? Or at least somebody hates you for an idea, right? And you've been, you feel very satisfied, very, very happy that at least I have some enemies. Yes or no? Right? Don't we always feel happy of our enemies? That we have some enemies? Right? Otherwise we're nobody. Right? No enemies means you don't exist. Right? So the minute I have some enemies, that means I'm worth it. Right? <laughs> yeah? And if I've got a lot of enemies, means I've spoken up. And it's good that a romantic person, a romantic poet, has spoken up, right? Because he's spoken up against the slave trade and he's done, he's earned the enemies he deserves, right? So that's something that I think is important and uh, that's really uh, something that you might like to laugh at, right? But uh, look at Beethoven tearing up uh, the dedication to Napoleon, though Napoleon might have never even heard of it, right? But that's become a kind of a romantic act which is looked at as a, a kind of an iconographic, uh, iconoclastic move or an image of romanticism, right? Yeah, so the idea of having enemies is important, right? Uh, yeah, Coolridge, you will rejoice to hear that copper is recovered from his lunacy and is employed in his translation of the Italian, etc. Right? So, it's probably referring to William Copper, who is a poet, an uh, uh, English poet also, right? Yeah. Uh, poems of Milton for an edition where Fusilli presides as a de designer, right? So, he's talking about the idea that this is lunacy. Of course, the lunacy that happens or uh, the internment that happens of a lot of these very highly strung intellectuals in the 20th century, right? Uh, many of them who are poets spend a lot of time in mental hospitals, right? So, and 
they walk the line between sanity and insanity in today's world, right? So, uh, and of course, a lot of them commit suicide. The confessionalists, uh, who you will probably study or read about, uh, commit suicide because they're dealing with Freud and re-understanding Freud in, uh, in a very early uh, kind of way, right? And actually, uh, and there's a lot of things going on. So, they actually commit suicide, uh, some of them, right? Some of them spend a lot of time in the mental hospital and in and out of uh, mental hospital, right? Yeah. So here, of course, uh, the idea of lunacy is new, right? Because the first mental hospital is Bethlehem in England, right? And Shakespeare is already talking about that. And from that, you get this line constantly in Shakespeare and other writings where it, said, it says, all bedlam will be loose, right? That means everything will go mad and every all the people will be crazy, right? Yeah, so you're actually talking about the people in the mental hospital being loose, right? And of course, uh, with that, I think we must talk about uh, Michel Foucault, right? Because he's got this ma uh, very interesting book, which he writes in 1960, right? That's his first book as a student, right? Where he's talking about madness and civilization. Right, and he's talking about of the birth of this thing called psychiatry, right, and the mental hospital, right, because that's uh, Foucault is a professor of history of ideas, right, and he's talking about the time in the 15th century, 15th century, if I'm not wrong, yeah, where uh, leprosy is no more a dangerous illness. Leprosy has been eradicated in Europe, right? So you have something called a leprarium. Hello, I'll call you up afterwards. Whoever that is. Right? Uh, we are talking about something called a leprarium, right? And when we are talking about a leprarium, uh, what uh, is important is leprosy is already, uh, we've already got rid of leprosy, right? And uh, they don't know what to do with the leprarium, right? I do not know what to do with this huge kind of thing that only lepers are kept in because lep leprosy was a disease which everybody would get very frightened of, right? And uh, by that time, leprosy is got rid of, in Europe at least, right? Of course, you have Father Damien who goes uh, to Malachi, uh, yeah, and he's called the Saint of Malachi or whatever that is. That's at, uh, I don't know whether what the dates are. I read about them in school. But uh, the idea of leprosy and leper colonies and the idea of leprosy in Europe, right, is almost eradicated, right? So they try to fill, uh, they don't know what to do with these huge uh, leperiums. And you have something called the warehouse, right? And the warehouse, uh, not warehouse, is it called the warehouse? Yeah. Right, so uh, that's when you have the prisoners, right? Uh, uh, people like the sex workers, right? People who are beggars, the murderers, right? The thieves, uh, all of them, and the man people—they all put into these houses, right? Yeah, uh, the workhouse. Sorry, I call it the warehouse. The workhouse, right? Yeah, and the workhouse is something that is split into the mental hospital and the jail, 
right? Which is something that's very interesting as far as history is concerned. And that's how you get the birth of the mental hospital, right? And uh, please read Madness and Civilization, right? Because, of course, Foucault would try to tell you that madness is not a pathological condition, but it is a kind of a political position that people take, right? Yeah? And uh, you have that also in your pop psychology when people say, well, don't you say you're mad, right? What happens when you tell somebody you're mad? That means you're not, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to listen to what you're saying because you've gone nuts, right? Yep. So that's something that's very political, right? And when we go back to Hamlet, right, who's about this mad person, right? Hamlet is a person who puts on the act of madness as a political act, right? Okay. And still, when we talk about madness today, it's a political act which can get us out of jail, okay, or out of a sentence or whatever that is. Right? Yeah? So the idea is, when we talk about madness, uh, we're actually talking about how madness works in a political manner. Right? So, uh, when we're talking about the Greeks and we're talking about Oedipus, right? Madness was respected. Right? And madness helped a sick society come back to normalcy. Right? So madness has a position over there. Right? And now you're trying to get rid of the mad people. You're trying to intern mad people and put them in the mental hospital, right? So at one level, when we have the romantics, right, they take up madness in a serious way, right? And uh, they look at the mad mother, uh, uh, mad people on the road, all those things become subject matter for them to talk about, right? Yeah, and of course, the mad people are not treated well, uh, neither in Shakespeare's time. Uh, Shakespeare gives a different treatment to the mad people, right? Like, for instance, in Hamlet, you have Ophelia, who goes mad, right? And uh, she's given a very, very gentle treatment by Shakespeare, right? When actually, in reality, the mad people would be taken to a public park, and people would throw stones at them, uh, throw rotten tomatoes and eggs and all sorts of rubbish at them, right? And the poor mad people would get ag irritated and agitated and react, right? So, when we're talking about all that, Right? Of course, in India, that's still being done. Right? The law enforcers, instead of looking after this, they are interested in doing the work of the politicians, right? when actually their work is to pick up mad people and see that they're treated in a humane manner. Right? But we don't do that. And you get children who throw stones at mad people still. Right? I think we've seen all that, which is quite sad. Right? Yeah, but so here you have Cowper, he's got out of his lunacy, right? And okay, now whatever that lunacy is, we don't know, right? So there are departments of psychology, the departments of uh, psychiatry, right? Yeah, so uh, madness is a huge kind of thing for the romantics because uh, uh, Shelley talks about uh, to the Skylark, right? Such harmonious madness from thy lips would flow, right? It's so that's uh, one of the examples again. Uh, Wordsworth has a mad, mad sonnet, right? And they go back to the madness of Heracles, right? In Greek mythology, and they work on that also, right? Yeah, because the idea of madness is a divine madness, right? God has made you mad, and therefore you're a poet. You, you produce this kind of poetry because sane people can't do that. Only mad people can do that, okay? Only mad people can write poetry. Only mad people can 
be creative. So that's the kind of way they are operating in, right? So uh, that takes us back to this legitimizing of madness, right? And also uh, looking at the madness of Kappa, right? Okay. And now he's doing some work. Okay. So madness, of course, as defined by Lama over here, seems to be non-functional, right? When you're non-functional, it means that you're mad, right? Which is actually a very painful condition to be in, right? If somebody thinks you're mad, that means you're not functional, right? Yeah, I have a friend of mine, right? And I, I didn't meet him for many years, and I, uh, maybe two years ago, I went and met him, right? And then he said, well, they've advised me to go and have a psychotherapist, right? I said, yeah, what's that? So he signed up from the psychotherapist, etc. And now he's put into an, uh, he's put into a, some kind of a care home where they're looking after people who are not okay, right? And he's very aware of his condition. And he says, well, do you know something? What do you do with a person who is declared mad? How does that person fit into the normal world, right? Yeah, so that's exactly what this man is talking about. When he's talking about copper, right? It's talking about the idea of how do we deal with all this stuff, right? Yeah, so we're talking about madness, sanity, functionality, right? And uh, it's interesting that he's talking about this because Charles Lamb has a sister called Mary Lamb, as we talked about yesterday, right? And Mary Lamb is the one, because of her so-called madness, kills her father and mother, right? Which is something that's very scary to live with, right? Yeah, and we have, that's the real world actually, right? So the question is, how uh, extreme will your madness be, right? Yeah, and of course, the other people who write Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare, uh, that is, they actually make Shakespeare available to children in, in this uh, kind of story form, right? Uh, so that's something else. Yeah. Uh, then where am I? Coleridge to an I. Yeah. yeah. It's time. Yes. Sorry to disturb. Yeah, I was sorry. Yeah. So you want me to stop? Right. Fine. I'll stop and go on tomorrow. Please read the stuff that we have done and we can go on after that, right? Yeah. So does all this make sense to you or is it too boring? I don't know. Yeah. Please give me your honest opinion. Are you finding this too boring? Right? No, it's difficult but it's not boring. Yeah, okay. Fine. It's a little difficult, right? It's absolute for me actually it's difficult because I've not read all the lectures or all the letters from Lamb to Coleridge and uh, well I think it shouldn't have been prescribed but they prescribed it and they put me into this course so I'm doing it right yeah and I'm sorry if I'm not effective enough because it's difficult to teach this kind of uh, prose right not for anything but for the context and all that and I've not done a lot of work on it right yeah so I've actually to go and uh, hunt around with Coleridge and uh, what's this guy's name uh, Lamb etc I know something about them but I'm not an expert in them at all, right? Thank you, right? Yeah. Sir. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Mm -hmm.